Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. You saw thousands of people along the rail line just standing there to say goodbye to Bobby Kennedy. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I remember it so well where, you know, I was like, hello, hi, Susie, hi, it's LD. I was like, oh, hi, Lyle, what's up? I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in- instance of wanting to run towards it. Welcome to Great Minds, the podcast. Today we have uh, just a, he's become one of my favorites, and you are, Ido. You know, we know each other three, four years now? Probably more. Yeah, a couple more. And uh, I'm not going to be able to go through all your titles, so we're going to need to do that. That may take up the entirety of our time together here on Great Minds. But Ido and I met when he was ambassador from Israel to the United States. And you have about 25 years or so experience in the Foreign Service. Now our ongoing partnership involves all kinds of things, including your position at NYU, where you're a global distinguished professor. So welcome and thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, it's such a pleasure to be here. I'd like to take this opportunity to also thank you for our really long-standing friendship. You've always been there for me, for the State of Israel. I served here as Consul General from 2010, 2016. So you've got about you know 24 different titles. We'll go through them at various points. But <laughs> I want to start, um, you were very early to the game in recognizing the importance of Israel as a brand. And that's unusual for someone whose background, career background, is in the Foreign Service. And I think it goes all the way back to the just after the turn of the century, about 2002, when you had Israel included in the YNR annual brand survey yeah. Uh, index. Yeah. What was it that led you to that thought process that we need to look at Israel as a brand? 9-11. This, Justin, you are looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. The CNN Center right now is just beginning to work on this story. So 9-11 happened. I was here in New York. I came to New York a couple of months before 9-11. And it was clear to me that 9-11 was an event of biblical proportions that will be discussed thousands of years from now. Well, you can see these pictures. It's obviously uh, something devastating has happened. And again, unconfirmed report that a plane has crashed into one of the towers there. We are efforting more information on this subject as it becomes available to you. And I wanted to know what was the impact of 9-11 on the positioning of Israel in, in the American mindset. And what we discovered was really earth-shaking and groundbreaking. We discovered that where you stand on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict does not predict your behavior when you're looking at the quality of the emotional tie that Israel is generating. In other words, Israel was better known than liked, which is a very bad place for you to be as a brand. So I adopted, thanks to David Sable, who introduced me to the great minds at the BAV, I learned that there's a huge difference between looking at a country as a political entity, which is what the Israelis are used to, 
and looking at a country like you're looking at a different uh, at another human being in other words looking at a country in order to develop relationships and not necessarily to 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 establish some kind of a transactional relationship so the whole conversation of do you support me in my conflict with my neighbor became secondary to the question of do you like me right and so i decided to look for assets that will allow us to increase Israel's relevance in the United States first, but then we branched out to Canada and Europe and so on. We established here a group of volunteers called the the Brand Israel Group. You know some of them, sure. And and they did an incredible, um, ins- incredibly insightful work studying the brand. And basically, we came to the conclusion that at the end of the day, the story that we can tell the world about Israel that will be both compelling and authentic is the story of Israeli creativity and Israel's creative spirit. Israel is second only to Silicon Valley in terms of startups and VC investment. I think there are several main factors that lead to Israel today being known as the startup nation, as this nation of entrepreneurs. My name is Saul Singer. I'm the co-author of Startup Nation, which is the book about what made Israel innovative. Shimon Peres, of course, is the person we quote most in the book entirely, but perhaps my favorite quote is defining Israelis or Jews in one word, and that word is dissatisfied. And so as early as 2004, we started emphasizing that by sending groups of influencers in areas that were not explored before. For example, we sent the first group of architects to Israel, people that write about architecture. We sent uh, culinary influencers, people that write about various cuisines. We sent groups of people that write about wine, uh, sports, fishing. Even we had a group from Canada writing about fishing in Israel. We don't really have fishing in Israel, but surfing and so on and so forth. And the response was overwhelmingly positive. And so we knew we were onto something. So you had the assets and a story to tell. You just needed a vehicle to tell that story. And we needed to change the mindset of the Israelis. Because the Israelis want to win a debate. Okay. In their minds, there is a debate. Israel is at the center of this never-ending debate. And we have to win the debate. And how do we win the debate? By explaining why we are right and our adversaries are wrong. And this is pretty much what the political leadership of the Zionist movement did since Theodore Herzl all the way to today's leadership. It's called advocacy. And what we came about, when we came about, we said, wait a second, this whole thing about advocacy doesn't work. You know, convi- a legal argument is not going to give you not even one tourists, not even one tourist, not even one dollar of foreign investment. Um, what will bring you the tourists and the dollars is a connect emotional tie, is an experience, is something that is based on relevance. What is Israel to people if not an experience? So, and, and rather than talking about the state of Israel, let's talk about the Israelis themselves. Let's bring their story to, to the forefront. And it worked. And then, thank God, in 2007, the first smartphone was introduced, right. the iPhone, and that changed everything. So a lot of people give me credit. They say, Ido, you're such a pioneer. You saw 20 years ago that we need to celebrate Israeli creativity. But the truth is, 
that technology really deserves the credit for everything that has happened because technology allowed Israelis to communicate and celebrate their own country, their own personal lives, their own achievements directly. Uh, within 100 years, we've been able to get to a point that in the skyscrapers, we have the world's top R&D companies, Facebook and Google and Autodesk and other companies in buildings at the heart of Tel Aviv. A lot of the Israeli talent finds its way to center around here. This is where the top of the startup industry is. It speaks highly that the energy of the city is here. They do it with skill, with wit. It's beautiful, it's attractive. And, uh, you know, we've had, this is the eighth consecutive year uh, in which we break the record for incoming tourism, regardless of the geopolitical situation, which is an incredible statement about technology. And it's not because of the government, it's not because of me, it's because of the fact that today people have their own individually designed feeds and they share information with the world. So Israel, because it's an open society, is branding itself through millions and millions of channels every second. And that's the beauty of the brand. Well, and you've got a lot of things going on here concurrently. So you've got tourism on one hand, and those numbers going up now, eight consecutive years. But you've also got a brand that's been built around creativity, innovation, and that whole story of what's happening from embracing technology, not just employing a lot of people in Israel, but also as a major export from Israel. And you've had some stunning successes there. Absolutely. So Israel is a very small country to our listeners who don't know the number. How big is the country? So we're in terms of size, we're a little bit bigger than New Jersey, but we're only 9 million people. Um, in 1973, when I was 11, we were 3 million. Wow. In 1948, when my father was fighting the War of Independence, we were 500,000 people. What's interesting is that by 2048, when we will be celebrating 100 years, we're projected to be 17 million. Wow. So it's an unprecedented growth in the Western world. And that mix, 9 million today, roughly half and half Jewish, non-Jewish? What is the mix? So you have about 18% of the population is Arab. Of those 18%, I would say 95% are Muslims and 5% Christians. Okay. Um, so roughly one in five. One in five. Um, the Arab population is gradually becoming more and more an integral part of Israeli society because you see more and more Arab females getting their college degrees, more and more Arab uh, men work in technology, work in social services, work in health services. So, so I know that there's a lot of discussion in the Israeli media about all the negative sides of it, but the truth right. is that it's never been better in terms of their integration into Israeli society. And the country is so small. We drove, I think you can drive across in how long? Nothing, two hours. You're and top to bottom? <laughs> top to bottom, seven hours. Seven hours. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is a little tiny piece of land. Yeah. And, but packs an awfully big punch. Awfully big punch. And, the, the, you know, and this is where Einstein comes into the picture the you see the, the in 1945 something very interesting happened. 1945, 
the war ended in Europe, but it was also the time when the Jews really began, the Jews in Palestine really began to fully realize what had happened in Europe because it was a different era, different technology. We didn't have internet then, right? So the Jews, like my parents who lived in Palestine, didn't really know what was happening in Europe. Right. There were rumors, lots of rumors. People came, people went back, but the average person was not fully aware of what happened. April 29th, 1945, a sergeant come up and told us all, check your gas mask. We are going into a town that they think has a gas dump that's mined. So when we proceeded to this town, it was Dachau. And part of our division, the 222nd Regiment had troops in the camp, liberating the camp. And the time that we come to the gate of the camp, they opened the compounds, and I seen thousands of people crowding out that looked like skeletons with skin stretched on them. They were dirty, they smelled, and, and just one look at them. Some of them half dead. Something happened that we realized that this war is all about. We know now why we were participating in, in this war. And, in 19, and, and until 1945, Zionism was not a big hit among Jews. You had two and a half million Jews that came from mid-19th century to 1925 to America. Only 80,000 Jews came to Palestine during the same period. And that ended with the Johnson-Reed Immigration Act in 1924, 1925. So Zionism was not a big hit. Um, and just as we were, the Jewish people, at, our, at the weakest point in our history, probably, 1945, just beginning to realize what happened, the Arabs decided to boycott those 500,000 Jews that lived in Palestine economically. And they enacted the Arab economic boycott. The response to the Arab economic boycott was to do two things. The first was the obvious, to develop markets outside of the Middle East. That's why until this very day, Israel's largest trade partner is in Europe. That's why we have trade relations with Asia and North America. We don't do trade with our neighboring countries. But the second thing, which was more important, was to develop an economy based on knowledge and not on resources, not on natural resources. These are the historical roots of the so-called startup nation, because Israel is way more than just startups. And that was out of necessity. Out of necessity. And that started in 1945. The champion of this was David Ben-Gurion. Now, why was it uh, uh, an option even? Because of people like Albert Einstein. This is a little-known story. In 1918, Three years after he published the theory of relativity, he was approached by one of the leaders of the Zionist movement, whose name was Dr. Chaim Weizmann, who was a Russian-born British scientist, a chemist, was a brilliant man. He was also the first president of the State of Israel later on. But Chaim Weizmann was a very charismatic person. He convinced Albert Einstein to become active in the Zionist movement. Now, today, when you say Zionism, a lot of people attach to it political meaning, and there are lots of political connotations. But in those days, being a Zionist was, was, it was very simple. It meant that you believe that the Jews should have their own nation. Their own homeland. Their own homeland. That the Jews should be the ones 
who controlled their so own destiny. So it's not a, viewed as a radical term. It was not viewed even as a political term. It was viewed as a simple, basic, legitimate uh, plight of the Jewish people to control their own fate. That's what it was, and that's what it should be, by the way. In any event, so Einstein becomes a Zionist. In 1918, he travels with Chaim Weizmann to New York, to the Waldorf Astoria. They hold a big fundraiser. They raise hundreds of thousands of dollars, which today would be many millions. And with that money, they go back to Jerusalem. This is 1923 now, to break ground for what would later be the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. We have gathered here in Princeton to serve the cause of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. The university was founded long before the establishment of the independent state of Israel. This institution of research and scholarship represents a spiritual bond encompassing the Jews in all countries. I am grateful to all who have followed our invitation. We are grateful especially to Professor Dinur, the Israeli Minister of Education, for assisting us in our work. Einstein brings with him Sigmund Freud, philosopher Martin Buber, Judah Leib Magnus, and Chaim Weizmann on a barren hill outside of Jerusalem on Mount Scopus. They break ground, 1923. There's a beautiful picture of all five of them standing there. And that was the beginning of the Hebrew University. Albert Einstein is appointed as the first chairman of the board of the Hebrew University. The university opens its doors with the money raised by Einstein in 1925. When Einstein died 30 years later, 1955, he leaves the university everything, including his archives. So today we have at the university 80,000 documents, including the original theory of relativity with his own handwritten notes. We have his study, we have his desk, we have his chair, we have everything. And we are now working on building uh, a museum that will showcase everything that Einstein left the university. So this is going to be a big attraction. So in my search to find assets that will help Israel celebrate its own creativity, I stumbled upon the story of Albert Einstein, which, by the way, most Israelis are unaware of, of his strong connection to the Hebrew University. So... Uh, So we said, okay, what can we learn from the story of Albert Einstein, and why should Albert Einstein be the, why should he spearhead the branding of Israel as a hub of creativity? And the answer was very simple. Albert Einstein achieved everything without any organization, without any budget, and without any facilities. He used thought experiments, and his, um, his, his, um, Imagination was the number one tool. So in other words, uh, the story of Einstein is empowering and inspirational to every person on the face of this earth who thinks that he or she may not have a chance because they don't have you know, the facilities or the budgets or the, or the, or the staff. But Einstein proved the point. If you use your imagination, you don't need anything. There's nothing stronger than the power of an idea that Victor Hugo said. And Einstein proved it. And so we decided to take that part of Einstein's genius, his imagination, 
and to use it to empower people all over the world and to create some sort of a do tank, right? A, a group of people, a curated community that will help solve global problems from hunger through disease and what have you. And so that's how the Genius 100 was born. The genius is not that the 100 people are geniuses. The genius is Albert Einstein's genius. And those 100 people selected, invited to join the initiative are people that are willing to give their name and their fame and sometimes their fortune to make those good things happen. Uh, the group gets together once a year by invitation only in Mexico. In between, the group is supporting many great initiatives. We can discuss some of them today if you have time. But the idea is really to create a simple curated community. You cannot invite yourself. You have to be invited by one of the members. And, and just uh, we take on big issues like curing uh, blindness, uh, like uh, solving problems of hunger, um, you know, rescue disease. We just uh, received a wonderful donation of 200 acres in San Diego, which we're going to turn into the home of the Genius 100 community. It's going to be like the Genius 100 Institute. And so now we have this uh, great gift that we received from one of the members, um, 200 acres in San Diego. Fabulous. And you just had your big annual fairly recently, didn't you? Yes, we just had it in, in Los Cabos. Every year we get together for the G100 Summit in Los Cabos. And that's where the, the land was, uh, the gift of the land was announced. And what were the big items on the agenda for 2020? Curing blindness is number one because it's so easy and it's so feasible. Uh, this is the work of a Nepalese doctor by the name of Sanduk Ruit and a Stanford doctor by the name of Jeff Tabin that to date they cured almost a quarter of a million people from unnecessary blindness through a very simple cataract surgery. So if a cataract surgery in America costs between $2,500 to $3,000 in Nepal, they were able to bring it down to 75 bucks. So we manufactured the lens over there, and the surgery is performed. It's about five to 10 minutes, and, and we, we've shown videos of women that never saw their children and two hours after the surgery, a woman can see her child for the first time in her life. And so it's really remarkable. Then we have uh, Chef John Doherty, who's formerly with the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, who came up with this nutritious pouch um, that can really, that has 18 months shelf life with no preservatives. So it's a wonderful food solution for situations of crisis and natural disasters. So we're helping him. We have David Broza, Israeli legendary guitarist, who came up with this incredible idea of uh, distributing guitars in areas where, that are plagued with uh, juvenile crime. So, you know, that studies show that in certain areas like Sao Paulo or, or even Chicago, uh, crime goes up after school hours. In some parts of the world, crime goes up after school hours, 30% rise, which means that many of the crimes, like burglaries, are being committed by young people. They have too much time on their hands. They have too much time on their hands. They have nowhere to go. So the options are either to engage them in sports. That's why soccer is so popular in Brazil, because it's so simple, it's so inexpensive. The other option is to engage them in, in, in music. So David Broza, who's a real righteous person and real age angel is a is a is a great guitarist and he came up with this idea let's produce an inexpensive guitar especially designed for youth 
in terms of its dimensions. And let's distribute those guitars in areas plagued with crime. I play, therefore I am. A message of empowerment stamped on the back of special guitars delivered to thousands of kids in the U.S. and now to children in Israel. David Groza is one of Israel's most well-known musicians with a signature style fusing elements from flamenco to rock and roll and songs in Hebrew, English, and Spanish. Since his debut on Israeli airwaves in 1977, Groza's music has promoted messages of peace and bringing people together. For me to go to hospitals, or to go to special need schools, uh, or to play anywhere where, where people don't feel great about themselves and that maybe brightens up their day, to me that's a gift. His latest passion project, One Million Guitars, started with friends Ido Segal and Eric Bland, giving youth in disadvantaged communities access to musical education. And he got um, Radiohead and other major musicians to support the idea. They're taping little videos, uploading them on YouTube, teaching the kids how to play certain songs, and then he works in collaboration with the local school system. So it's being supervised. The children that receive the guitars have to commit for at least two years of studying guitar. And it's a wonderful, you know that at least for two years in the afternoon, these guys are going to be playing guitar. And it's a wonderful thing. Imagine the, the, the kind of talent that can come out of this, the, the kind of creative expression that can come out of this project. So these are the kind of projects that we're... Um, last year, uh, one of our founders um, supported... Uh, uh, animal sanctuary in Africa. So people don't think about it, but in circuses all over the world, there are animals that are being held, obviously, in very tough conditions, and there's an organization that simply buys them, rescue them from those circus groups, and brings them back to nature. And we built, uh, with, the, with the help of Janet Jensen, who's one of the active members of Genius 100, a sanctuary in Africa for those animals. And mm -hmm. so there are many projects like that. Since you stepped down as ambassador, you have got more things cooking than anybody I know. Beyond the Genius 100 at NYU, give me, give me your top three, four, five more. So... Um, NYU, I'm, um, uh, I'm teaching international relations, and I'm focusing on two areas. One is place branding. I call it non-product branding. How do you take a place, an idea, and brand it? There's a whole practice to it, which right. I learned the hard way, by yeah, the way, yeah, doing yeah, it from yeah, the you've done it. You're one of few who's done it. And then the second course is called Diplomacy Disrupted. It's about the impact of technology on diplomacy, policymaking, and politics, and the general idea here is to say, look, we've, we're shifting because of technology from a model of advocacy to a model of marketing. And so uh, a, a local philanthropist here in New York by the name of Tzili Charney, whose late husband was very much engaged in diplomacy along with Jimmy Carter, and I see a picture here of yeah. you with Jimmy Carter. Yeah, yeah. Leon Charney, the late Leon Charney, was... Um, very, very instrumental in backdoor diplomacy between Israelis and Egyptians. And uh, Tzili Charney, whose diplomacy, diplomacy is her passion, uh, she asked me to head to be the chairman of the Charney Center for uh, New Diplomacy, 
which is affiliated in Israel with the University of Haifa and with many other institutions here. The centers, the, the forum's job is to uh, give people tools to practice new diplomacy. New diplomacy is essentially the shift from government to government to people to people. It's from government governmental diplomacy to citizen diplomacy. It's about giving people tools in the field of di digital literacy, uh, giving people tools in the sense of learning how, for example, diplomats are not being trained how to deal with narcissistic personalities. And narcissism is the epidemic of the 21st century. Why? Because technology lowered the barrier for people to self-indulge. So before social media, before smartphones, narcissistic personalities existed, but they did not have the chance to readily disrupt big systems so quickly. Today, technology is allowing them to disrupt those systems, and it creates havoc. And diplom diplomats are basically helpless and clueless when it comes to what they need to how. And not only diplomats, by the way. You find narcissistic people in the workplace. How do you deal with them? You need to train people. Because otherwise, it creates huge disruption to the workflow. And so these are just examples of what makes the Chani Forum so unique in the sense that we look at diplomacy, uh, we call it new diplomacy, from a different perspective. Has it become more difficult for career professional diplomats to do their job? Absolutely, almost impossible, because the political leader all over the world is self-centered, self-absorbed, not interested in strategic long-term uh, thinking, uh, interested in short-term short gains and, Im and immediate results. Politicians all over the world are obsessed with credit, and they look at the civil service not as a resource, but rather as an enemy, as a, as a nuisance, as a, as a burden. They even call them here in America, they call them deep state. Right. Uh, also in Israel, by the way. Um, and, and the result is that those civil servants, and I, I, and I was a civil servant for 30 years. No one can accuse civil servants in Israel, for example, that they have an agenda. Civil servants in Israel do not have a political agenda. Right. I say this for, for a fact. I know them. They don't have a political agenda. Uh, but the fact that you're not using them and you're trying to bypass them because technology is allowing you to do that is not a good thing for the system. And so the, the civil service has to reinvent itself. And what we do with the Charney Forum is telling them, this is what you have to do. See yourself as the CMO of your nation. That's how you reinvent yourself. Don't see yourself as an advocate of the policies only because this is being done by the politicians themselves. The leaders today, they don't need. Donald Trump doesn't need the State Department to explain his positions. He's explaining his positions directly using his Twitter diplomacy. And that's fine. That's wonderful. That's the, the technology exists and is using it. And there's nothing wrong with that. What the diplomats have to understand that instead of fighting this, they need to reinvent themselves. And the way to reinvent themselves is to say, okay, I'm now going to be measured by the number of foreign investors I brought to my country, by the number of tourists I brought to my country, by the number of festivals like Edwick festivals I brought to my country, and so on and so forth. So the measure of success is changing. The measure of success, the metrics have changed, and you're now talking about diplomacy as a tangible 
occupation rather than an intangible occupation. It's a huge difference. So you get to work with a very broad range of people. Who out there, you know, when you're looking for inspiration, when, you, when you're looking to, you know, bounce an idea off someone, what are some of the great minds in your, your world that you go to? Friends here in the States. I know you lived in L.A. as well, back in Israel. Who, who, who are your go-tos? Might be an author that you read or someone you listen to or just someone that you talk to. Well, you know, I have many, many people. You're one of them. Oh, come You're on. one of the people I That was I not consult. a setup, you know. <laughs> Thank you, though. You know, they, they tell this very famous story about um, a meeting that allegedly happened many, many years ago by uh, Rabbi Stephen S. Wise, who was the founder of the Reform Movement in America, and Sigmund Freud. In the uh, this was in the 1920s in Vienna, and um, and the um, the rabbi asked Sigmund Freud, Mr. Freud, who would you say are the three uh, greatest Jews alive okay. today? This is the 1920s, right? So Sigmund Freud says, um, uh, well, Albert Einstein would be one. Uh, the second would be uh, Dr. Heim Weizmann, let's say, the head of the, the Zionist movement. And uh, I can't uh, think of a third. Uh, uh, why wouldn't you be the third rabbi, he said to him. And the rabbi said, no, 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 absolutely not. And Sigmund Freud looked at him and said, Rabbi, one no would have been enough. <laughs> so story. the people that I consult with come from you know, the areas that are important to me. And obviously, I, you know, I, I look up to people like uh, the caliber of David Sable and, and, and people of his caliber to get advice about marketing and, and advertising and branding. Um, I, uh, I consult with, uh, with great academics uh, that I work with in New York and Israel, elsewhere. So, uh, but if you ask me what are my sources of information, it's probably the daily press. Uh, you know, I read the New York Times, I read uh, Haaretz, I read, um, I read the New York tabloids are very important. I think that the New York Post is actually gradually becoming more and more of a national player in America. I also read a lot about Hollywood. I'm an avid reader of The Hollywood Reporter. I like the rap uh, which is a wonderful, uh, I think, wonderful platform that tells you what's going on in Hollywood. So that's these are my sources of information. And looking ahead, the rest of 2020 and beyond, is there a particular goal that you're building towards? I know you have such a, you know, a buffet of projects, initiatives, clients, affiliations. Is there something out there in particular that you say, I really like to get this done? Yes, I would like to... F- complete uh, a couple of books I'm working on. Uh, one is about the rise of the new participant, which is really a typification and uh, a list of characteristics of the type of co-producer that exists out there. Because we, we've been used to discussing consumers and customers and voters and patients, assuming that there are passive people out there um, that are being exposed to our messages. And there's more and more research about what is the impact of the, of the fact that they're all part of this participatory culture? So I'd like to do that based okay. on research that was given to me by the BAV. I'd like to write about the work that we did about, on Brand Israel from a perspective of 20 years later, yeah. uh, what happened. 
It's a great success story. Uh, yes, I believe so. And, um, and also, uh, I'd like to write more about um, the makings of new diplomacy. What does it really mean to be a diplomat in the 21st century? Fantastic. Well, listen, the world is a lot better with you in it, and your you. influence you. is far-reaching. Uh, it's a joy to have you as a friend, and I look forward with you and David and uh, Amir and Yigal to bring Advertising Week to Israel and to the Mediterranean. It's an exciting part of the world, and uh, thank you so much for being here on Great My Lines. pleasure. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit AdvertisingWeek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy. 